Terry Balper and Kim Brass from Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraph Studio. My guest on this edition of Fangraph Studio making his weekly Monday appearance on a Monday. His weekly Monday appearance, and it has occurred in this case on a Monday, is the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest on this particular, this particular. Now, on this edition of the program, Dave Cameron, as always, as he does in every week, he endeavors to analyze all baseball. Of particular note this week, the cost-benefit analysis of effort. A cost-benefit analysis of effort. When Mike Trout slid into second base on a stolen base attempt a couple weeks ago, he very likely increased the probability that he'd beat the catcher's throw and arrive at the bag safely. He increased the probability slightly. He also increased the probability for injury. He did steal second base, and he also did sustain an injury, one that's likely to keep him out until at least the middle of July. For whatever benefit he created by stealing that base, it was at the cost of six to eight weeks, in this case, six to eight weeks of Mike Trout, which is probably worth five wins, given the current rate at which Mike Trout had been producing wins. At what point is a supremely talented player motivated not to try, or at least not to put himself into situations where he can create risk that far outweighs the reward? As Dave came in about that in much less succinct fashion, we also discussed the two-way player and all of the conditions that would have to be met and the impediments that would need to be transcended for a player, like, for example, Tampa Bay draftee uh, and the Louisville product, Brendan McKay, left-handed pitcher, first baseman Brendan McKay, uh, both to be developed as and also succeed as a two-way player. There are a lot of conditions and there are a lot of impediments, it would appear. Uh, also, I asked, I asked Dave Cameron. I asked Dave Cameron, if, uh, off the top of my head, apropos of nothing, if he'd characterize the assassination of a bloodthirsty tyrant as either A, a heroic act, or B, a violation of what Kant characterized as a moral imperative. Here's his response. I bet it's both. Those rich and compelling questions and answers in what's to follow. Uh, what's happening immediately, what's happening in the present, as I am saying something about Fangraphs memberships. If you have any interest in supporting Fangraphs or Fangraphs audio, for example, consider acquiring, for a reasonable sum, a Fangraphs membership. Uh, you can also acquire, for a slightly less reasonable sum, a Fangraphs ad-free membership which allows one to browse Fangraphs.com, the newly designed, the newly redesigned Fangraphs.com without the burden of banner ads, allowing for faster loading speeds and also liberating one from the distortive effects of advertising. It is Fangraphs ad-free membership, available at Fangraphs.com, is what it is. Let us turn to the conversation. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now. to lead you astray first, Dave Cameron. Uh, well, let's, let's go straight to the left first. Okay. Uh, well, this will be the this will be the main one. You, do you know? Uh, well, do I really want to bring this first thing up? Uh oh. Yeah. So, do you know how I how I have uh, bothered you in the past about what I ought to do in terms of personal investment? Oh God. Here we go. You know, well, do you know I made a bad choice to begin with? No, no. I made a, I made a did necessary. You, did you invest a lot of money in Adam Frazier's batting average? No, I didn't do that. Although, is there a market for that? Can I do that somewhere, or is that betting? <laughs> that's betting, yeah. Okay, that's betting. Fan duel, I think, is where you do that. Yeah, all right. So that's just betting. 
Um, no, no. What I did do was we were talking about, and I think you had uh, led me towards you know index funds essentially. Yeah. That's but, something I would do. I had I had money in a couple of like scattered around a little bit, and I needed someone to consolidate it for me, right? And I knew that I would not. I would left to my own devices. I would not do that myself. So I went to Edward Jones. Okay. Okay. Now it's not it's not my intention to use Fangraphs Audio to um, to cast aspersions against Edward Jones. But that's However, what you're going to do. Well, they they do appear to have some, and I think this is borne out uh, objectively. They have some. They have some motivation to create um, a situation where you're paying a number of fees, right? Yeah. They, you're I, saying they're aspersion-worthy. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a little bit of a dirty practice, I think. Yes. And this not to say that every – Ed Jones representative is – anyway, here's the point. I I had an Ed Jones account for years, and uh, now just I've just initiated the process of moving it over to Vanguard. Yeah, good for you. That's the right thing to do, right? Yeah, I mean, right. So we don't want to like sit here and chill for Vanguard, but Vanguard is the lowest fee. Uh, you know, basically, you know, they don't, they're not trying to sell you stuff. No, that's the thing. It doesn't. Yeah. I, yeah, that's right. I mean, we're not necessarily chilling, but we're receiving zero money from Vanguard. Yeah, right. I hope to in the future receive money. <laughs> well, you wouldn't. You wouldn't receive it from Vanguard. You receive it from the market. But yeah, right. That's right. But uh, but. Right. So I suppose, like, if you were to, if you were to apply the same sort of scrutiny, if I were to apply, have applied the same sort of scrutiny that I'm expected to apply to baseball, I would not have used Ed Jones to begin with. I would have used Vanguard because that uh, requires the least overhead, essentially. Yeah, they take less of your money than everyone else. Right. But I did and not do that. But no. But he was another. So I guess if 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 we're if I'm going to force you once again to relate. A scenario for my life to baseball, okay? The reason I went to Ed Jones, first of all, is because I know I needed help in essentially consolidating all these funds. So I paid a premium for the purpose of that, even though it was a task that in theory I could have done myself, but I did not trust myself to do. I don't know if that exists in real life. Is there is there, is there any sort of name for for being just uh, hopelessly incompetent? Uh, you were risk averse, maybe? I think yeah. you, like, you, you did not believe in yourself. And the, yes, you, true. you thought there was some uncertainty in your own abilities. So in order to, you know, reduce that risk, uh, that might not have actually been real, you paid <laughs> a, someone else to do something that you were capable of doing. Risk aversion. Right. I guess that's, so part of, so part of it was effort based, right? And I know that this has come up in, I don't know if we've had a conversation about it, at least recently. So work, work aversion? Is that what well, you're doing? But the idea of effort, of the, the capacity to give effort a, as a skill, right? Like, there, you see this, now obviously, there, there tends to be some uh, racial profiling that goes along sometimes with conversations about effort. Yeah. I don't know if it's as pronounced as it has been in the past. But I think that it's not, I don't think it's uh, controversial to say that there are diff- that there are certainly, um, that, for example, uh, American-born players and Latin-born players have generally different approaches to the game. I don't think that's I don't think that's controversial because they come from different places, right? They come from sure. They have and, different and cultural norms. There are different cultural norms. Yeah. The I guess probably the problem is when uh, you have someone say that this version of it is right and this version is wrong, and they're they're simultaneously that there's like no acknowledgement whatsoever about like what a particular player's value is worth, right? Right. But um, but here's what I know about myself 
is that I, d- I would not hustle to first base on every pop fly. Um, but, but even so, I think that, I think that, um, one errant, I think one mistake people make when they say, oh, this guy should have tried harder, this guy, um, if, you know, if he just tried a little bit harder, he would be good, is that effort might actually be a skill as well, even though it seems like it's just, it's purely based on willing oneself to be that great. Yeah, what do we know about effort as a skill? Yeah, that's an interesting, like, kind of psychological question. It's like, how much capacity for, um, full, what would be, I would be considered like full strength effort, right? It's like, clearly everyone has the ability to run, mm-hmm. especially in Major League Baseball. You can't get to the Major League Baseball if you can't run. So, uh. <laughs> right, you need to be able, yeah, you need to run. Like, you have to have some athletic ability to put your legs forward and, and move as fast as you can. Well, your even before that, but, you need legs. Yeah, right, you need legs, yeah. I think so, that's, I think that's true, right? You need legs. I'm pretty sure that that's true, yeah. I mean, it was amazing when, I mean, Jim Abbott had an arm, right? Clearly. He had like an arm and a half, but like yeah. he had an arm, and he was actually pretty good for a couple of seasons. Jim Abbott was amazing. Yeah, yeah. right. Especially like if you, <laughs> relative to, <laughs> to um, the sort of uh, tools with which he was working. Yeah. Right. He was amazing. Yeah. Uh, but even so, like I, I don't know. I think you need legs to play baseball. Uh, I think that's a pretty safe bet. Okay. All right. And uh, so I, I wonder, like. This isn't something I have any expertise on, and so mm-hmm. I'm not going to speculate as to like what the answer is. But no, but they, we're in a laboratory right now, Dave. Yeah, sure. This is a think tank for baseball. Not a not a good think tank, but a but a think tank nonetheless. So if the question is, uh, does every player, or every person, maintain the same capacity for the ability to run as hard as they can, as often as the next person, right? Like, could you, could everyone sprint to first base every time if they just chose to do so? Or is there some kind of, um, you know, actual deteriorating effect on your other skills where the people who are choosing not to, like, because Bryce Harper, when he got to the big leagues as a 19-year-old, right, he, that was one of the things he was known for, right? It's like, he ran out every single ball mm-hmm. and also hit, like, crazy home runs. And they're like, well, this is unusual. And then, like, at age 20, Harper was like, that's dumb. <laughs> like, he just stopped doing it. And uh, I wonder if there's, like, an actual physical, you know, detriment that that you bring upon yourself that these guys who, you know, kind of run out every fly ball or diving into bases all the time are inflicting upon themselves needlessly. Okay, so so here's the thing, though. So, and that's the, isn't that the exact sort of person that you do want to hustle on every play is one who's who's bit like barely a major leaguer. Yeah, I mean at that point, like you know David Eckstein or someone like that who's like you know does not have major league tools. Uh, if he didn't hustle all the time, he probably uh, wouldn't wouldn't be a big leaguer, right? right you wouldn't see him. Yeah, he'd, see like, him he'd be in double A, and he'd be like, well, yeah. that guy's not a big leaguer. Right. So you need some sort of baseline. So you think that maybe. That like because right there is there does seem to be an inverse correlation between like pure talent and the willingness to hustle all the time. Yeah, I don't like. I wouldn't say the willingness to hustle. Yeah, I would okay, say you're right, I, you're right. You're, I would phrase it more as like pure talent and the um, actual cost benefit analysis. Like if you're a really good player and mm-hmm. you might hurt yourself diving into a base to try and like don't do it. Like you know it is not worth. The two percent chance of diving versus sliding that you might be safe, but a ten percent chance that you break your thumb and you're out for the year. Like, like maybe Mike Trout should never dive into a base again because the Angels are worse off by a lot that he's out for a couple months, uh, and they didn't gain that much from him trying to steal second base. So yes, yeah, so there is kind of a 
there is a bit of a sophisticated calculus that you're asking players to perform, or maybe they're receiving it in the form of a directive. You'd know better than I am. But you're like, hey, you, you could say, either Mike Trout says, I'm more valuable to the team, not injured. Yeah. And therefore, in these particular moments where I'm putting myself at risk, I'm actually, for, for whatever good I'm doing on this specific play, the amount of, you know, expected runs that I'm adding, yeah. I'm... I'm I'm way outweighing that by the amount of risk that it that is included right. in it. So when we talk about like the stolen base caught stealing break even rate, that's always ever talked about or only ever talked about in terms of run value, right? Like if you get 0.7 runs from the stolen base, but then there's 0.25 runs from the caught stealing, you know, what percentage does it those two numbers line up, right? And it's usually considered to be like 70% or something like that. But that certainly does not account for any risk of injury, and, like, there's a huge difference between if Cameron Mabin gets hurt and Mike Trout gets hurt, right? And mm-hmm. so your effective break-even rate for a really great player uh, who isn't a great player because he steals a lot of bases, like, we're not talking Billy Hamilton here, uh, it has to be, you know, dramatically higher than for a guy that if he gets hurt, you don't really care. Right, and it's, like, it's almost like you need... It's not, it's not even just success rate. Like, you need him to be safe by 10 feet. Yeah, right. It needs to not be close. Right, yeah. Because if you make it pl- close, yeah. and maybe Mike Trout is a sort of player, and surely there could be other players like this, um, um, who they don't know. Like, once they're engaged in a the play, their level of competitiveness is sufficiently high that they're only going to sort of see the play out in one fashion, which is, you know... Um, as physically challenging as possible. Yeah, yeah but if you if you were to have a conversation with Mike Trout and say, okay, look, we don't <laughs> think it's worth it for you to steal bases mm-hmm. uh, unless you were, you know, if you have a great read, you know, the catcher can't throw, the guy is, you know, 2.1 to the plate, like, no chance you're going to get thrown out or very low chance you're going to get thrown out and you you can slide in feet first. If you ever think, if you're ever in a position where you think you're going to have to dive in order to be safe, don't go. Um, I think... You know, organizations can't control entirely what players do, but I think they could give some kind of directive and say, look, we're paying you $35 million a year, and we're doing it, we're paying you that to hit. You know, you yeah. stealing 30 bases doesn't really help us all that much. And do other stuff too, but right. Yeah. Um, Mostly. Uh, how did Kevin, Kevin Kiermeyer was recently injured? He was, yeah. He injured his hip, I believe. And, and he, he ended up sliding into wasn't it? You heard it sliding into a base, but I, I believe it was. Uh, I believe it was feet first to avoid a collision. Did you see this play? I didn't see the play. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that the net the net line. I have nothing to offer because I have not seen the play. Okay. All right. Well, I forget what it was, but I believe he heard himself uh, sliding into first. I'm trying to think of other plays, like on which players have hurt themselves. I don't know. I mean, if you think of uh, what Kyle Schwarber's injury from a couple years ago. Yeah. I mean, that's the one where. It, like the directive at that point would have to be like, don't run. Yeah, to, to try not to move. <laughs> right, don't because it's because it, you're. I mean, obviously, running. there's a risk of injury on any play. You can't ever just put a guy in a bubble and say, you know, mm-hmm. you don't, you know, unless you're going to DH them and tell them to like stand off the plate so they don't get hit by a pitch or something. So like, you're always going to have some risk of injury. But I think that um, players who kind of are considered to be like non-hustlers or something have probably figured mm-hmm. out that like the actual reward for base running mm-hmm. is just not that high. And that's, like, there's a, you know, you can get beaned in the head getting picked off, like, on a pickoff throw, so if you take too aggressive a lead, you're adding to your risk. Um, you know, there's just so much additional chance of a ball being thrown your direction or you colliding with someone trying to get to a base um, 
that, you know, for the marginal gain, a lot, most of what is considered hustle is base running, right? Like, that's generally what people are talking about when they right, talk right, about right. hustle. And base running is, for a lot of really, really good players, not worth it. Right. What is wait, where is uh, Jose Altuve now in the, the base? Because he's the guy who's known for aggressive base running, but it's it's almost always served him incorrectly. Yeah, he's like one wrong. of the worst base runners in baseball. Well, especially if you were sort of like uh, like adjust for speed. Yeah, too, right? right. Like because he's fast, you'd think like, oh man, he's, he just steals fifty bases a year. But like then you look at his base running totals, and he's a negative every year. Yeah, is there must be a situation where. Where you have to now, he actually is positive this year, and he has had positive seasons. But rel, again, relative to, or no, no, I guess is, I'm, yeah. I'm thinking of UBR, ultimate base running, right? Where he's he's not as well acquitted by that. He also hits into like a large number of double plays. Which is that for, probably because he makes a lot of contact, right? Yeah, but like way more than you'd expect, even just as a like high contact hitter, because he's really fast. Like you generally look at guys like Altuve and be like that, ah, he's never going to hit into a double play. And he's like among the league leaders every year. Yeah. All right. Well. It, you think that if you just took like his his opportunities with guys on and the amount of uh, ground yeah, balls he, he hits into more than expected, you could create a pretty reliable algorithm with just those two, couldn't you? Like well, runners you, on you, base and you, ground you, balls. You'd have to have speed in there. All right, but like, we, but he is fast. How, so what's going on? Right, that's the thing. Is that's why it's weird because all right. So he's a he's an outlier. He's an out, yeah. I mean, like Kendrick Morales hits into a lot of double plays, but that's because Kendrick Morales uh, is about as slow as anyone in baseball. Okay. All right. So wait, what were we talking about? We're talking about a quantifying effort and how players. Do you think that the? Do you think that essentially that it's the players themselves who figured out this, or are they approached by coach coaching staffs? I bet it's both. I bet okay. like when Bryce Harper was nineteen and running out every ball, there was probably like someone on the team that was like, "Hey, man, this is dumb." Okay. Yeah. But that's like that's like the uh, like sports radio. That's like their favorite thing. Yeah. Either to to acknowledge or to because I feel like. I feel like Harper's also been guilty of the exact opposite, where he hasn't run something out. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, it, it shifted very quickly the other way, where Harper came up, ran everything out, and then he stopped doing that. And people noticed, and were like, well, this guy's lazy or whatever. And, like, he got jumped on for not doing what he did previously, when his new approach is almost certainly better. And the, and so what, I guess for what the specter, like, if you give this, that sort of commentary the benefit of the doubt, um, and it might be something of which I've been guilty myself, where... Where I would say to myself, all this guy had to do, like I could, I could say I could. That's something I could do. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's like, if I were playing, that's the one thing I would be able to do. Why can't he do it? Yeah, I mean, I think people look at it and say that there's some kind of um, responsibility that when you've reached that level, you continue to. Um, I don't not necessarily be a role model, but like show kids the right way to play the game, which is almost mm-hmm. certainly you know the way that they prefer it be played. It's like <laughs> imposing cultural norms on the other person and saying like this is how I would do it if I were you, so I expect you to do what I would do, which is unfair. Okay, all right. So this well, this all goes back to my my effort, <laughs> my lack of effort. Um, I did not run to first. I did not run out the the ground ball to first base. Um, but I originally chose my investment house, and now I'm attempting to make up for it. But yeah. it's actually requiring more effort in the long run. I will say, like, you know, uh, to anyone listening to this who's like, what's wrong with Edward Jones or whatever, uh, not them specifically, basically any financial advisor or insurance, uh, a, not adjuster, but insurance, I mean, they just call themselves salesmen, I guess. They're all salespeople. Everyone in this world, in the financial 
advising insurance world, mm-hmm. they're all salespeople. Their job is to take your money away from you. Yeah. Don't trust them. The metaphor that's always um, – that made sense to me originally was uh, uh, well, it was concerned the gold rush is uh, – the, who got who got the wealthiest during the gold rush? It was the people who sold the shovels. Yeah. So you're selling the means. Yeah. Uh, tends to be the most reliable form of income. Yeah. 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 All right. Fair enough. Uh, let's talk about a different sort of uh, calculus, and this does not involve my sloth, um, but it involves a sort that you discussed today for the pages of Fangraphs.com, and which uh, is going to be relevant. Is going to be uh, relevant this evening. Um, yeah, or by the time people listen to this, uh, like five ago. days ago. Probably. Yeah, five days ago. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> I guess it is relevant to your sloth. <laughs> it's the it's the question of uh, Brendan McKay uh, to a lesser degree, I guess. So Brendan McKay, Louisville, Louisville left-handed pitcher slash first baseman, Brendan McKay, uh, shortstop slash right-handed pitcher, Hunter Green from a high school in San Diego area, maybe? Yeah, he's in uh, Sherman Oaks, I think. Okay, all right. Where is where is Sherman? Is that right? San Diego? L.A., San Diego, somewhere over there. Kind of in, all right, all right. Yeah. Southern California. We'll yeah. say that. Um, who I saw a video of him throwing. Uh, well, I think he he can already hit 100, can he? 102, I think. That's too fast. Uh, I mean, it's too fast to hit. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess it's good for a pitcher to have it. Yeah. So he's doing that, and um, he also, I guess, what plays a competent short, although he's it considered was, a very good defensive shortstop with power. With power, okay, right. Which is um, also a thing you like to have. Right. Yes, it is. And the question is, uh, for what would you select him? Now, I've been uh, – this will not surprise you to learn. Um, I'm sure once an episode over the last month, uh, Eric Long – or those couple months, Eric Long and I uh, have discussed Brendan McKay. We've in, we've invoked his name at least on one occasion at least. Yeah. Um, because – not only because it's um, – He's a he's a prominent member of the draft. Not only because Eric Long and I actually saw Brendan McKay uh, at the ACC tournament in Louisville, um, but because you, the question of who will select him and for what position they will they select him or will they select him for both positions is uh, all of those are questions worthy of asking and are perhaps fun to answer because they have implications for players beyond Brendan McKay and and even not just players but like uh, like a some foundational concepts in baseball itself. Yeah. I mean, like, I think with McKay and to a lesser extent Hunter Green, because he's going to get, you know, he's going to play one way, we're pretty sure. But Shohei Otani, who's, uh, you know, uh, coming to America at some point, mm-hmm. Major League Baseball seems to kind of be faced with this question of, is it possible to have two-way Major League players? And, you know, in what role could they be used and uh, how would you develop one? Because this isn't something that we've had, right? Like, uh, Brooks Kishnick was the last guy to really try this in 2004 with the Brewers, so that was 12, 13 years ago. And he was basically a relief pitcher who played the outfield occasionally and, like, hit 50 times a year. So not exactly, you know, what, what most people think of when they think of, like, a two-way player. Certainly not a guy you would spend the number one overall pick on, like McKay. Um and so I think, you know, we're at a point where the game is changing. Teams are carrying more and more pitchers. Benches are getting smaller than ever. We're having pitchers pinch hit for other pitchers. It's becoming, like, to a point where, with the game the way it is, um, you know, we're, we, we might be at a point where this is a necessary way to combat um, kind of the pitching changes and, and to build a roster that can kind of live in this day and age. You might 
it might be more practical to have two-way players than it has ever been before, but no one really knows how to make one. Right. Now, how, do you know how Otani came about, essentially, as a two-way player? I mean, I'm sure I get the basic idea. He was good at both, yeah. and it was therefore given an opportunity. But, like, was there any question of whether he would play two ways or not? So I think he actually uh, tried to come to the United States out of high school and not go to the MPB. Uh, and I think he, like, made some effort to, like, declare for the draft when he was 18 and then, like, ended up withdrawing, and there was... Anyway, he, uh, as an 18-year-old, wanted to do both, and I think maybe the only way he convinced uh, the Japanese leagues uh, to keep him was to let him do both. He, uh, he basically leveraged himself into the ability to, to both pitch and hit. Um, but the schedule in Japan is also very different, right? Like, they play, like, you pitch once a week over there if you're a starting pitcher. You're mm-hmm. not pitching every fifth day. Um so it's more like college, and where Brendan McKay basically would pitch on Fridays and then could hit the rest of the time. That's not really how it works in Major League Baseball. Um, <clears throat> but also, just there's a larger talent variance in these lesser leagues, like in the NPB or in, in the NCAA, where um, you know you basically have this larger spread in talent, so that a player uh, who who can basically abide on his athletic ability alone without necessarily the development time. In the major league level, when there's so many high-quality players and high-quality pitchers, and now everybody's throwing so hard, I'm not sure that we have a lot of evidence that suggests that a player can be successful doing both pitching and hitting at a high level without committing to one or the other. Right, and you make uh, and you make this point. You say asking a player to try to become a major league hitter and pitcher still seems like it's erecting another barrier to any major league success at all. And to this yeah. point, we don't really have much evidence that the reward is worth it. Yeah. Uh, and that's the, this is one of the points you make is that uh, in terms of developing a player, like all there is, all there is, is uh, barriers, right? Right. Like that, that's all there is, even for the most talented of them. And does a club – now, on the one hand, you'd say as an uber-talented player has fewer barriers, Right. Um, but as a club, even but but as a club, you also expect those players to produce more. So, do you really want to put anything any more challenges between him and the major leagues? Yeah, I mean, I think like uh, you know, if you're Jordan Schaefer or Christian Bethencourt or like the, the guys who basically this spring were, uh, well, I think the um, Dodgers are kind of kicking us around with Brett Eidner, who's an outfielder they claimed on waivers who can also throw a little bit. Like, these kinds of guys, I think, like, absolutely, there's reward there in that they're not major leaguers as one-way players, or at mm-hmm. least not not productive ones who will stick around. But they might have a career if they, like, they might be able to play 10 years in the big leagues if one of these guys can figure out how to do both things, you know, at even replacement level. Like, if you have one player who can be replacement level pitcher and replacement level position player and saves you a roster spot, that guy's gonna, that guy's gonna stick around for a while. So for those kinds of guys, I think it absolutely makes sense to experiment. But when you're talking like the number one overall pick in the draft, or even a first round pick or a third round pick, like one of these things that you think is a significant asset to your club, where you're expecting to get some like pretty legitimate produ- production, I don't know how much you want to risk. Like say you know, so I think Cato has Brendan McKay projected for like eight WAR, uh, which makes him what like a top. 40 top 50 pitching prospect or top overall prospect top overall prospect yeah, yeah as a pitcher. now it, it, to be clear that's an average of everyone i know someone um i know that uh, earlier today mitchell posted something on lewis brinson right and i think his projected war over the first six years was like seven or something 
Yeah, seven or yeah. twelve or whatever. It wasn't and then quality, there was a comment yeah. to the effect that, oh, why am I worrying so much about top prospects if right. they're only going to produce as much as, you know, Dustin Ackley? Right. And the point is like, well, that's just the that's the that's average. the mean, yeah. Right. Yeah, Certain guys don't a, make it. Right. But if you could get a guy who's going to produce, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, that Mitchell was on the list, right? Yeah. And so I think. If you look at McKay and you say, okay, this is, you know, a guy who's projected for a mean of eight war, which means it could be, obviously it could be zero, but it could also be 20, right? Like, how much of that are you willing to surrender for the chance to have, I don't know, a 95 WRC plus bench playing first baseman, right? Like, what's, uh, what's the upside really of asking, like, Madison Bumgarner is probably the best example of this, right? So like over the last four years, Madison Bumgarner has a WRC plus of 100. Um, the Giants have never asked Madison Bumgarner to play the field. This is about as good as a, a, a hitting pitcher as we've seen in Major League Baseball in quite some time. Uh, you know, he's got real power. He's pinch hit for other pitchers, which makes sense. But to ask him to actually, like, start at first base, they've never done that. Because why would you risk the health of your ace to get a 100 WRC plus guy in the big leagues. And he only got to that 100 WRC plus after being awful for four years. So Yeah, and that's right. I think you noticed, didn't he have, was, didn't he have a five WRC plus? His first WRC plus, his first four years in the big leagues was five. Yeah. He, right. yeah. he hit like any other pitcher you would think. And it took him a long time to develop into this guy who now can hit major league pitching. And if we say, okay, you have a guy like Bumgarner who has like serious power and, you know, can hold his own as a hitter, the Giants wouldn't even consider, like, it's never even been discussed, like, if Brandon Belt is hurt, maybe we'll stick Bumgarner at first base or have him take it. Like, it's never even a consideration. It's like, how good would McKay have to be as a hitter for you to justify using him to, you know, to DH a few times a week? Like, you would have to think this guy's like a 140 WRC plus or something, right? Like, you'd have to think this guy's Chris Bryant or something in order to risk, uh, you know, the chance that on one of these off days he has to make a throw to the plate or, you know, something happens when he's hitting and gets bean in his throwing arm. Like, the the inherent risks of doing this extra thing, not even including the rest. Like, I've talked to a major league pitcher earlier this year who thinks, like, the day after you start you shouldn't even have to come to the ballpark. Like, you're, it's so draining on your body he thinks you just go sit in an ice bath for 12 hours or, like, get a massage or something. And, like, to ask a player, like, hey, thanks for throwing 120 pitches the night before. We know you're gassed. Can you now go out and hit 98 miles an hour? Like, that just doesn't seem fair. Yeah. Well, this uh, this actually, uh, um, something that you said earlier in the, in the conversation, I think, is relevant now, right? We talked about the, you talked about the the different sort of stolen, the break-even points for stolen base rate um, after taking into account, you know, so what, like, generically, like, it's like 70%, yeah, somewhere there. right? But that's only if you're looking for a positive run production on the stolen bases themselves that doesn't account for injury risk. And so you want Mike Trout, for example, like you want his break-even point to be 80 or 85%. Yeah, if, right. Like, he, like the sort of Pythagorean, the, yeah. the, the, the platonic, the platonic uh, those, are two, those are two different philosophers. <laughs> Pythagoras and Plato. And you want the platonic uh, break-even point to be about like 80, 85% because now you're accounting for injury. So um, now you, that's what you're talking about, I think, with regard to like Brendan McKay's hypothetical offensive production. Right. Like it has to be distinctly above average um, because because you're also like uh, – because you are – every time he either goes out in the field or even every time he steps up to the plate, there's a risk that he's going to get injured and he's not going to be the guy who's also helping you on the pitching side. Yeah. I mean like, you know, if we talked about like what's a reasonable 
expectation from Brendan McKay as a hitter if he doesn't focus solely on hitting, right? Like, you know, if you look at, like, the history of college first baseman, first-round picks, it's terrible. Right? Like, most of these guys are like Brett Wallace, Ike Davis, Justin Smoke, Yonder Alonso. You know, it's not good. So... What, well, what, and those are the ones who made it. These are the you're right. These are the the right. guys who didn't wash out. Like CJ Crone is on that list. Like there's a bunch of guys who just washed out. Uh, whoever the Angels took last year doesn't look any good uh, out of Virginia. Um, basically, college first basemen don't don't make the big leagues. They end up not doing very well uh, over the last 15 years or so. So you think like, okay, if McKay just developed as a hitter, we might think he's going to turn into Mitch Moreland or something like that's the realistic probability. Like, how much do you want to sacrifice of a potential? you know, quality starting pitcher to to not have to pay Mitch Moreland $5 billion in free agency, right? This is what a, you know, a mediocre hitting first baseman costs. It's not like these are expensive to find. Pedro Alvarez couldn't get a major league deal this winter. Like, do you think Brendan McKay is going to turn into something better than that? Probably not. Here's a, this is a t- brief tangent, but when Joe Panic was selected out of St. John's by the San Francisco Giants, there was a general sense, it seemed, that this was not a very strong pick um that he was a fringy he was going to be fringy at shortstop he hadn't really shown any power etc uh, joe panic has recorded nearly nine wins in less than 1500 plate appearances you know i mean every uh, you know on, on average he's like he's been worth like three wins a season yeah uh cj crone yeah i mean yonder alonso was like a star at miami right yeah and he was selected also in the first round like um, seventh overall, maybe. Right, and yet he hasn't. He, I mean, he's not. Uh, who would you rather have on your team? Yeah, well, that's not fair. <laughs> right <laughs> that's now. not fair this season. Yeah. Because um, uh, Yonder Alonso's had a great season, so maybe that's the point. Maybe the point is the bat wins. But I feel like it's so easy uh, to get distracted by the quality of the offense, not yeah. to take into account that the defense. Is helpful too. I mean, I think that, you know, we've talked about this before. Projecting a hitter's offensive ability is by far the hardest thing to do in baseball. No question. Mm-hmm. Like, asking scouts to look at a guy's swing and say, how well can this guy hit is just really difficult. Like, Eric Thames is a very good major league hitter, and everybody watched him, and everybody had tape, and everyone went to Korea, and no one had any idea that this guy was like a really good major league hitter because he got $5 million a year as a free agent, like, not that long ago. And, right. You know, like, and that's the guy, with a, like, that's right the guy before, with a track record. Yeah, I mean, like, that's the thing. Is like, it takes a long time, years and years, for people to be like, oh, yeah, we are now confident that this guy can hit. Like, right before J.D. Martinez broke out as, like, one of the best hitters in baseball, he got cut. Professional scouts watched him every single day. Coaches watched him every single day with the changes that made him a great hitter. And they're like, nope, you can't play. And he was, like, a top ten major league hitter at that point. Like, just being able to watch a guy swing and say confidently about how well that guy can hit in the big leagues, insanely difficult. And so to draft a guy where that's the entire bet, like, he doesn't do anything. If he doesn't hit, he's not a major league player. The risk on that is off the charts. What do you think when the – I know that you have cause to think of the Mariners sometimes a little bit more than you think of other teams. What did you think when they drafted DJ Peterson out of ASU? Yeah, same thing. It's, no, New Mexico. Sorry. Yeah, we saw him play. I saw him play against uh, Bat-only bat guys in the first round are generally not good ideas. Yeah. There's a player named Drew Ellis who also plays for Louisville and is actually, uh, if you look at some of the metrics, is maybe more desirable, maybe been a better college hitter than Brendan McKay. He plays third base for Louisville, uh, and then he plays first base for them when he's not hitting. 
Um, I'm curious to see what happens with him because yeah, I think he's actually a better hitter. And so right. Okay. I, saw, I saw an interesting quote from Louisville's uh, coach, and I think it was in Jerry Krasnick's piece on Brendan McKay. And his coach, like the guy who's you know seen McKay more than anybody else the last three years, said, "I don't know if Brendan McKay is you know the best hitter in college. He's probably not. He's maybe he's in the top five, right? And I don't know if Brendan McKay is the best pitcher in college. I don't know. Maybe he's in the top five. Uh, but if you put it all together and you get like two spectacular players, and I'm like, that's not how this works, right? Like, he's going to be one or the other in the big leagues. You don't spend the number one overall pick on a guy and then develop him in a way in which you could just add all this additional injury. At the end of the day, it's either, he's either gonna be a pitcher or a hitter. And he might like, be a hitter who throws some like, mop-up innings when you're down 17 to 2, or he might be a pitcher who pinch hits for other pitchers, but in general, he's going to have one position in the big leagues. And if you're not sure if this guy is a top five hitter in college, and you're not sure that this guy's a top five pitcher in college, he probably shouldn't go number one overall. Yeah. And then if you, so I'm curious what you feel about this, if you have any opinions about it. Uh, yesterday, yesterday, or Saturday, I guess, um, the uh, Vanderbilt was eliminated by Oregon State. Oregon State has obviously had a good team, um, uh, in, in part perhaps by questioning it, uh, by rostering at least one player of questionable. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. the point is that their offense is pretty good too. And Kyle Wright, who is regarded by some as a as like a clear first pick in the draft, right? Well, I think uh, Eric Longenegger has him as like the number two prospect on his board. Uh, that's as high. I haven't seen anyone have him as the number one. I think almost everyone says Hunter Green's the number one prospect in this draft. Okay. But Kyle Wright got... Top five. Kyle, Wright got, Kyle Wright's up there. Yeah, but Kyle Wright got... He got... He got... Uh, he got smacked. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 he crushed it. He gave up, he gave up seven runs in, in less than seven innings. I think uh, Wright's really interesting. Like, when Chris Mitchell released his Cato list, he had, like, right 10th or something, 12th, something like that. And this yeah. is college only, right? Like... Um, Wright seems to be a stuff over performance guy, where McKay is very different. He's a performance over stuff guy. Like McKay is sitting in the high 80s in some of his starts in like the fourth or fifth inning. Some of that might be because he's also hitting on the Davies should be resting. Uh, but McKay's performance is excellent, but his stuff is less excellent. Where Wright has you know top shelf stuff, but hasn't gotten people out. Uh, generally, I think when we look back at like the guys, we're like, wow, the stuff's really good, but you know we're willing to overlook. Um, you know, the fact that he's getting hit around, like, I remember, like, Mark Appel had this problem, right? Like, when he was at Stanford, everyone's like, it's 97, and it's like, yeah, but it's, guys are hitting, like, 350 off him in college, like, that's not great. Yeah. I'm interested to see how that happens. I, I, I like Adam Hazley. He's my guy. He's the center fielder from Virginia? Yeah. Yeah. And then Brent Rooker is an interesting player, too, uh, plays for Mississippi State. He's played first base. I actually don't know what the end of season stats said. He played first base for Mississippi State all year as a – he was a redshirt junior, so he's a little bit older than some of the guys, some of the, his peers. He played first base for Mississippi State. He was easily the best hitter in the SEC, which is already a good feat. Right? For example, like two years ago, that was Andrew Benintendi, right? Sure. Who became a major leaguer almost immediately. Um, he also led SEC in stolen bases, and he had a great stolen base record in terms of conversion rate. Not something you expect from a first baseman. Yeah. So right, exactly. So I wonder if well, will he play outfield? I think he. Yeah, I think he was listed as an outfielder on Eric's board. Yeah, but he's been playing mostly first base this year. Anyway, lots of interesting stuff there. Was I going to ask you about one other thing? Maybe Zach Cozart. I, that was my. <laughs> that's a Zach Cozart. Question. Good year, not this good. But good. You know, he's a good player, but not this yeah. good. 
Yeah, no, not probably not this good. Yeah. He was momentarily uh, at the top of the war leaderboard. And then Aaron Judge came along and was like, you will go back in your place. Yeah, Aaron Judge, what, uh, I don't know how many more home runs he has. He's got 21 now. Though, yeah, uh, Aaron Judge, I think, is a 3.9 war. Mm-hmm. And that's June 12th. Yeah, I think we could, a... like, it's not a walk because he could get hurt or something, but Aaron Judge is going to win rookie of the year. He's doing a good job of uh, proving his, making his case. I mean, even if you like regress him back and say he's going to be like you know closer to a league average hitter the rest of the season or something, and you think that pitchers are going to figure him out, he's still going to end up with a five and a half win season or something. Yeah, yeah, I think probably the projections are still relatively conservative. Yeah, I think good. they have like a three sixty Wilbur or something. I'll take the over mm-hmm. on that. He's really strong. Yeah, he's doing a good job. Uh, right, and they have him going. Depends how you feel about it. A little, little bit more than two wins. So, yeah, he's still going to end up. Yeah, that would put him in a six-win season. That's like, you know, he'll get MVP, though, to that point. Yeah. Yeah, uh, would not be surprising. Dave Cameron, you have fulfilled your obligation. We talked for some time, actually. We talked for a long time, yeah. I don't know what we, uh, I don't know what we talked about. Yeah, me either. Sloth, I guess. Is <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to our other program. Uh, but uh, before we do that, allow me to thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. That has been Dave Cameron. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.